All right, now we're at verse 8. Verses 8 to 15. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Verse 8, directed towards the men, though it is not exclusive of the men, as we know from verses 1 to 7, and from other scriptures, that men and women ought to pray. However, there is a sense in which men ought to be setting the example and leading the churches in this, their families and churches. Because of what he has just said about salvation and the rule of law and orderliness in society and church, he says, therefore, in order to accomplish this, I want the men in every place to pray. He wants the men to pray. When he says, I want, he doesn't mean it's his human opinion. He knows he's writing the Word of God. He's not writing human opinion. He has spoken this way in other places. For example, in 1, Timothy, uh, 1, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he speaks of his letters, his words, as being the Word of God. And... Similarly, that's his intention in 1 Timothy. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. He praises them, thanks God, that they received God's message not as the word of men, but for what it really is the Word of God. In chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. 4, 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. He praises them for what they have done because they listened to the apostles. Verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He acknowledges there that what commandments he gave them came from Christ. And for verse 8. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And 4.15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. What he says about the return is by the word of the Lord. And chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 27. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. He expects his letter to be read in the churches as authoritative scripture. In the same way, when he says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, I want, he's speaking of his apostolic authority, as we saw in chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, 1, 
and 112, this apostolic authority granted to him by Christ. I want the men in every place to pray. The men ought to pray as the men are the heads, they are the leaders, they are the authorities, both in the family, in the church, and in society. The men ought to pray. We ought to pray in every place, not just in Ephesus, but also in Corinth. Not just in Corinth, but in Rome. Not only in Rome, but in Jerusalem. In like manner, all around the world. Every place, wherever the church is located, men ought to pray. Because God is not worshipped in just one location. He is worshipped wherever the people of God are gathered to worship Him. Therefore, it should be characteristic of the churches that the men pray. The men should be prayerful. When they are prayerful, they are showing their dependence. They're showing their humility. They're showing that they're helpless, useless, and weak apart from the power of God, apart from the gracious power of God working in them. Not only do we need the Word of God, we need the Spirit of God. And the means by which we obtain the filling of the Spirit and the wisdom of the Spirit, the Spirit of grace, is to pray. The Word of God and the Spirit of God to accomplish this purpose. When we pray, though, we ought to lift up holy hands. Lift up holy hands. When we lift up holy hands, we're, we're, when we lift up the hands, firstly, we do so for various reasons. The Bible describes the, the need and the benefit of lifting up hands for various reasons. We lift up hands according to Psalm 28. Psalm 28. We lift up hands, it says here, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. The parallel to lifting up holy hands is the voice of supplication, to petition, to plead with God to help and to intervene. Another example, Psalm 63. Psalm 63. And verse 4, 63, 4. So I will bless you as long as I live, and I will lift up my hands in your name. To bless God and to lift up the hands is in order to show our blessing, uh, that we are blessing God and praising Him for who He is. As, as well, Psalm 134. Psalm 134 says the same. Lift up your hands 134 verse 2, lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Lift up the hands in order to do so. Also, Psalm 141 verse 2, 141 verse 2, may my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. Incense and evening offering are paralleled here prayer and lifting up of my hands be as incense and the evening offering. It's a sacrifice. Whatever we 
have in our hands whatever we would do with our hands instead of it being used for our benefit we use it to worship God we use it to worship one more place and that will be Isaiah chapter 1 Isaiah chapter 1 and this will help us with our transition he says lift up holy hands lift up holy hands why does he say lift up holy hands how do our hands become holy or in what sense do we lift them up in a holy manner Isaiah 1 verse 15 so when you spread out your hands in prayer I will hide my eyes from you yes even though you multiply prayers I will not listen your hands are full of bloodshed when it's when the scripture says full of bloodshed it means shedding innocent blood when hands shed innocent blood there's no repentance in fact there's the rituals of going and doing the things that are done in worship and yet living in sin hands full of bloodshed shed and then worshiping God God will not accept that kind of a prayer he says I will not listen I will hide my eyes from you when we lift up holy hands it has these meanings and here he specifies that the lifting should be done without sin not that we are completely free from sin but to the extent that we know of our sin we should confess our sin repent of our sin seek to be in proper fellowship with God whenever we pray to God repent of sin it should be characteristic of our personal prayers and corporate prayers to confess sin so that we come to God asking him to forgive us and empower us to live righteously speaking of that righteous living he says this prayer with holy hands should be without wrath and dissension without wrath and dissension it seems as though he's primarily speaking of wrath and dissension amongst ourselves yes there can be wrath and dissension between us and God we might be angry at God and we might be uh, separated from God in terms of our thinking and our words we, we are uh, we're complaining that he hasn't answered our prayers things like that which we ought to not do if God is God let him do as he pleases and answer our prayers in due time or if he chooses not to answer according to our request let him do whatever he wants in due time I know O Lord that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted that should be our attitude towards God that was Job 42 2 we ought to have that attitude towards God so that we not come to God with wrath and dissension come instead with peace and with the desire to be humble and to unite with him on the other hand there's also wrath and dissension that can happen among us both among between men and between men and women in the case of between men or anyone else Matthew chapter 5 Jesus told us when we come to God in worship to come making sure that we are okay with our brothers Matthew 5 21 you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not mur commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be 
liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. If we have a situation where a brother has something against us and there is conflict and animosity between us, we ought to seek whatever means possible in order to reconcile. This is similar to what the Apostle said in Romans 12:18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all men. In this letter, he's given us an example in chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, examples where there can be disputes, wrath, and dissension. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. There, those who promote false doctrines and promote disputes and controversies, these are the ones who are promoting this wrath and dissension, and whatever it we need to do to avoid that, to silence them, and to create harmony in the church. That's what we ought to do. Another place in which there can be wrath and dissension with men is found in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. After giving instructions to the wives... He says in 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You husbands, likewise, live with with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessel since she is a woman. Grant honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life and the purpose so that your prayers may not be hindered. God won't listen to our prayers when there is this constant friction and contention that happens between husbands and wives. That, that needs to be settled. He wants us to have prayers that are unhindered. If we want answers to prayer, just like Isaiah 1.15, in the same way here in 1 Timothy 2.8, we have to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Not that you can't, after having a dispute with your wife, go and plead with God. If that's not what he's saying. He's saying we ought to be seeking for this kind of harmony and reconciliation, and then the prayers will be answered answered favorably in our life. 
Now, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, he turns his attention to instructions for the women. By the way, we do have a longer passage here addressed to the women. That is not to say that Paul is promoting a heavier burden on the women than the men. He's, for the reasons for the context and what generally happens, he's trying to explain what the women ought to do. That's all he's doing. God has chosen to have a lengthier response to what the women should do for his own reasons. We may say that the opposite occurs in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, for over 30 and a half chapters, addresses men, usually. The assumed audience is youthful men, or youthful young disciples who are men. As we see in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, when there's a temptation for the men, who is it but an adulterous woman? So he obviously has in view that he's giving the men instructions for 30 and a half chapters. And even in chapter 31, though he is saying what a godly woman is like, he's doing that for the benefit of the men, that the men might have a godly wife. So for whatever reasons God determines, according to the need, according to the context, he gives a lengthier explanation to the men or to the women. By the way, also Ephesians 5, 22 to uh, 33, has more instructions there also for men than it does for women, though both are addressed. Verse 9, what does he want for women to do? Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. As he says, I want... Again, this, this phrase, I want, is supplied, at least in the translation I use, it's italicized, it's supplied from verse 8. And the connection to verse 8 is the likewise. Likewise, I want. It's justified. Again, when he says I want, it's not humanly bound, it's not culturally bound. He means it in the authoritative apostolic sense, as I mentioned before, Chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 12, and his commission in Acts 9, 1 to 15, Galatians chapter 1. In these various places, we've identified that Paul has apostolic authority as he says these things, authority that comes from Christ. He wants women to have proper clothing, modest and discreet. Proper clothing is modest and discreet. Therefore, they should cover themselves appropriately. They should not expose themselves so as to be a temptation to others, to the men. They should cover their bodies appropriately. And, he says, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly garments. This is not the way women should adorn themselves if they want to make a claim to godliness. Verse 10. If we want to display, if we want to give an example of a godly woman, don't look at her beauty, look at her works, good works, which are her spiritual clothing. Her spiritual clothing, he says in verse 10, but rather by means of good works. They should be 
according to this context, keeping quiet, doing their basic duties in life, showing their godliness by the responsibilities that God has given them. These are the good works that they should do. This befits women making a claim to godliness. When we point out a godly woman, it should not be the beauty. It should be the clothing of good works. Verse 11. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Women should be quietly receiving instruction with entire submissiveness. Quietly. You'll notice this word comes up again in verse 12. Remain quiet. And entire submissiveness. Not occasionally, not whenever they feel like it, but entire submissiveness. When they're supposed to be quiet, they should be quiet. This is characteristic of a godly woman. Not one who speaks up, not one who gripes and complains whenever she wants. She's supposed to remain quiet. Completely. Entire submissiveness. Verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. There we have it. No teaching and exercising authority over a man. The, the woman of the house is not supposed to be the Bible teacher of the husband. The woman of the house is not supposed to be the one who goes into the local church and is the Bible teacher and preacher of the local church. The woman of the house also is not supposed to be the one who teaches and exercises authority over men in all areas of life. It is not for the woman to do so. She's supposed to remain quiet. It is the man, the qualified man, not just any man, as we'll see in chapter 3, verse 2, the man is supposed to be able to teach if he is to be an overseer, elder, pastor. Not just any man can do that either. A qualified man can fulfill this role. But in terms of the woman, she is not supposed to do so. Now, what does this look like practically? Because there are ways in which women can and should teach. When he says, not exercise authority over a man, he's not meaning that they cannot teach in other situations. For example... 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. His first teachers who had true faith were Lois and Eunice, grandmother and mother. 2 Timothy 3, 14. 3, 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He's praising Timothy's grandmother and mother here because they taught him from childhood the sacred writings, the scriptures. The grandmother and the mother. So, Women, as mothers and grandmothers, can and ought to teach their children, male and female, boys and girls. They ought to teach them. And this is good. They have that role. 
Another role they have, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Here is another role. Older women, verse 3, are to practice those virtues. And then in verse 4, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. They're supposed to show and teach and explain how the young women can fulfill their duties, God-given duties. Just as they have been, the young women ought to do the same. And this is for the older women to do, to show and teach. Now, is this, is this to be restricted to the Ephesians alone, where Timothy is a pastor? Let's go back to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, now verse 13. For, or because. Why did he give this, these instructions? For, or because. It was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. It was Adam who was first created and then Eve. That is a theological reason based on creation. It's not a cultural reason. It was Adam who was first created. Adam was first created and then Eve. When Adam was first created, he was given the Word of God in Genesis 2, 15-17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... He didn't command the man and the woman. The man first heard the Word of God. And then in Genesis 2, 18-25, the woman was created from the man to be the man's helper. She was created for the purpose of helping the man. So, to support the role of the man. The man is the one with the Word of God. The man is the one who was put in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it, to do his necessary work there. He was commissioned and created to do so. And the wife was created to support that role. That's how it was in Genesis. So when he says, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, Adam has the chronological preference and he's also got the, the headship role, the duties that are, God has given to him to do, which the wife is supposed to support. He was created first. And the wife to be his helper. That's the first reason. Verse 14 a second reason. And it was not Adam who was deceived. Adam was not deceived, he says. And I take it as faith, at face value, though some interpreters say Adam was still deceived, but not deceived like Eve was. Adam, I believe, he was more conscious and willing to sin. So his his. Uh, his sin was not a matter of deception. It was not a matter of smooth talking and tricking as it was with the serpent who was the devil. The devil doing that to Eve. That's the way the devil did that to Eve. 
he, he snuck in there and he convinced her that it would be good to partake of the fruit. And then it says, And the woman gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There was no objection. There was no fight. It doesn't imply that at all. It just <coughs> implies that she gave it to him, and he decided it was okay to do, and he did it. He partook as well. Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. The woman was quite deceived. She's quite deceived because it plunged the whole human race into death, sin, and misery. It was a serious deception. And she fell into transgression. When he says that she was deceived, I believe he's using this word deception in its usual way. There was some trickery, <coughs> some hoodwinking, some smooth talking, some flattery, some a little truth here and a little falsehood there. And this is what tr tricked her so that she fell into transgression. She was deceived. This is not merely Paul's interpretation, as though he is a sinful man at this point, not writing scripture, but just his opinion. It's not that way at all. In fact, he's a good interpreter and exegete. In Genesis 3.13, Eve, the woman, actually says this to God. God confronts her, and she says, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She admits to deception. When Paul says that she was deceived, Eve said it herself first to God. She admitted that. So these are the two reasons. The woman who is created second for the purpose of supporting the man, and also the woman who is susceptible to deception, for these two reasons, women should be quietly receiving instruction, not teaching and exercising authority over a man. 15. In addition, but women shall be preserved. Your Bible may say saved. Literally, the Greek word is saved. But women shall be preserved or saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. What does he mean here? He's calling attention so that people, and especially women, not feel as though they have no hope and no way of escape. He's showing them that they are saved through their fundamental duties of bearing children, which he uses this one example to explain their household duties. As it says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, Therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. To, this is where their vocation is. Their vocation or occupation is in the household. Marriage, bearing children, keeping the household in order, doing their basic duties there, teaching their children the scriptures, this is what they should do. And in 1 Timothy 2.15, when he says bear children, he's intending to bring a few things together with that phrase. Bearing children assumes that they're married. The Bible does not assume 
the bearing of children in a legitimate sense unless one is married. So bear children assumes marriage, just as he says explicitly in chapter 5, verse 14. Bear children. Now, if they continue, it's not a, a matter of simply doing their household duties. It's not merely a matter of bearing children, and some women can, uh, cannot and will not bear children. It's not a matter simply of that. He says, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Faith and love. These are virtues and qualities of the Christian life. He's mentioned them in chapter 1, verse 14. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. True faith and true love are found in Christ. The practice of the faith and the practice of love should be evident in the women. And it says, and sanctity, holiness. Holiness with self-restraint. Holiness as described here in our verses and as we read earlier in Titus chapter 2, he says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. And all of this with self-restraint, self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, from Galatians 5. Women and men, and in this case he calls attention to the women, to especially watch out for self-control. Practice self-restraint, in the living of the Christian life as God has given you in the household. When he says, one more point to make on verse 15, when he says that women should be doing this, he's not saying that they should do this for their salvation, but he's saying you should do this to manifest your salvation, to give evidence of your salvation. This is similar to the Apostles' Explanation in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 8, 2-8. He'll describe our salvation and then he'll describe our sanctification. In Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works here specifically for women and wives and mothers is explained in 1 Timothy 2. So we're created for good works in which we should walk. This is what he means. The manifestation of the salvation is what he means. This also is what James meant in James 2, 14 to 26. And I'll just read excerpts of that. James 2.14 What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but has no works? Can that faith save him? If there's no good works emanating from the profession of faith, is that a true faith? Can that faith save him? His answer is no. And then he uses two examples. Abraham, a rich man, though godly, a man of faith. And then he uses Rahab, the harlot, a poor woman. 
A rich man and a poor woman both have true faith. And how do they show their faith? They showed it by works, their godliness. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The professed faith without the works is a false faith. So for women, for them to demonstrate true faith, it should show in the way that they conduct their household. And persevering in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint.